Jane Alexander is an actress, writer, and conservationist. She chaired the National Endowment for the Art from 1993 to 1997. A Tony Award winner and member of the Theatre Hall of Fame, Alexander has performed in more than 100 plays. Her long film career includes four Academy Award nominations for The Great White Hope, All the President's Men, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Testament. She has been honored with two Emmys for Playing for Time and Warm Springs. Alexander was a trustee of the Wildlife Conservation Society, a board member of the American Bird Conservancy, the American Birding Association, and a commissioner of New York State Parks. She sits on the board of the National Audubon Society, the Global Advisory Group of BirdLife International, and the Conservation Council of Panthera. In 2012, the Indianapolis Prize inaugurated the Jane Alexander Global Wildlife Ambassador Award with Alexander as its first recipient. Jane Alexander, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you're, and thank you so much for taking the time. So before we set up this conversation, we had a bit of a back and forth and you were writing that you spent, spend much of your time, you're in Nova Scotia now as we're speaking on the phone, and that you spend much of your time, although you're acting still in many roles, but uh, as a birding and uh, your life as a conservationist is something that might not um, many of our listeners might not know about they may know you as a your role as a in so many moving and thought-provoking roles that you've embodied over the years but tell us a little bit about what brought you to conservation and what you've been reflecting on in uh, these recent days Mm, yes well uh i i came to conservation probably as a, a lover of nature as a young girl in um, growing up outside of Boston, Massachusetts. We just had a tiny backyard, but I was enthralled by whatever lived there from a very early age. So I kept up with my love of nature all through life by the same path that I was also going on in theater for for the most part, and um, later film. And conservation came of, out of my love for animals because it became clear in the 70s, well, 50 years ago, that uh, there were many species that were beginning their decline yeah. and, uh, and continue to do so today. So then I became friends with a lot of biologists and uh, ecologists and went on many trips globally with them and locally. And... Uh, I became an ardent uh, protector of wildlife. Yes, and you've have you been keeping journals throughout it all? I guess as well, and you've and you've written about this. You've published uh, uh, most recently, "Wild Things, Wild Places." Um, just tell us about some of those trips, some of those. I mean, I guess heroes of conservation that you have um, worked alongside. Yes, I do regard them as heroes of the planet, mm-hmm. of, of conservation. They're unsung for the most part. I mean, people who are in science and in particularly in the, the conservation of wildlife know who these men and women are mm-hmm. for the most part. But George Schaller comes to mind first and foremost. He's uh, arguably the preeminent field biologist in the world today. He's in his mid-80s now, mm-hmm. uh, but he's still going out. He just recently was in India and also, I think, Brazil. Uh, he talks a great deal, and very few people know who George Schaller is. He's just a giant in the field. He was the man who um, initially was in China studying pandas and realized the panda was on a decline and spamed uh, gorillas in Rwanda and lions in the Serengeti and so on. So I think of people like George, and there's legions of them in across the world now and they're working so hard to keep wild things and wild places alive and I help them by advocating for their cause for the cause for all of us and uh, in any way that I can I so that's that that's what I do uh, apart from my life as an actress 
And I think it's so, I mean, I think it, I, I would imagine because you're so, you're so good at acting as well, that it can be, um, I don't want to say a sacrifice because this is your other love or your realization that we must save these uh, species. We must save our own habitat. We must save the habitat for them as well. But I can imagine being torn in a way. And this love for the in, environment, for wildlife, this was something you shared with the late Edward, Ed Sharon as well. Yes, my, my late husband. Um, it was wonderful. We took many, many trips together. And I uh, also continue to, to do uh, trips with mainly birding now. Mm -hmm. uh, birding is something that anybody can do from their own backyard because birds exist almost everywhere on this planet. And they're absolutely remarkable species. We have about 10,000 of them in the world. and. Uh, I sit here in Nova Scotia, and what I'm doing now is going out every day, several times a day, and just uh, noting which birds have come in. I'm interested right now in what is migrating back, what might not make it uh, this year, and mm. those kinds of things. Unfortunately, a lot of the surveys that I usually do, like the breeding bird survey up here, I have a, a route that I've been doing for 10 years. Uh, and the, um, the, the those have been shut down because of COVID nineteen, mm -hmm. and but you brought up early on how the link really for me between all of us and the health of all of us and COVID nineteen certainly represents represents the pandemic that we we were all fearful of and here it is, mm -hmm. and it was probably begun in an animal. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Asia, and we don't quite know exactly how the transference was. Uh, we know a number of bats carry something that's similar and so on, but it probably went through another animal into the wildlife market, and people have all read about this. Uh, but what what has happened was it's not the fault of the animal. Yes. It's the fault of the human beings who decide that they're, they have to kill the animal uh, in or, and put it in the market in order to eat it. And and for many people, this is an issue of poverty. It's clearly they don't have the means either to eat anything else or to sell anything else uh, to, to make a living. So this, the, what coronavirus is doing for us today is bringing all of these issues, social issues to the forefront and economical um, issues. So it's 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 fascinating it's a, it's a time once we all begin to get over uh, what's happening with the virus which is severe um, for so many people and it will it will probably with us and we'll have to live for it for quite a number of years as we've lived with other viruses but once we get get over the initial wave that we're going through right now which is so severe uh, I, I think we have to begin to address all of these 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 social issues, uh, because that's what's causing pandemics in the world sure. and the, the very health of everything in the world. Sure. I mean, what, what can we expect? The more we, if we're not killing the animals, if we're displacing them, wild animals, they have no habitat except to share our habitat. And they may be immune to these um, viruses, but we aren't. So I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to think in those terms. I don't want to be alarmist, but it, it, it has consequences. Yes. I'm Izzy Smarty, a student at Johns Hopkins University studying environmental science and film and media studies. Alexander's story of how she came to be interested in conservationism fascinated me, and I was surprised to see how relatable it was. It seems so fitting when Alexander commented that her story started as a little girl, just being enthralled by nature and animals in her Massachusetts backyard. There doesn't have to be some soul-defining event that happens to want to make a change. I think if you were around when the Chernobyl disaster happened, or you saw the Amazon fires this past year up close, that would be life-changing. But even just this preoccupation with the nature surrounding us can be enough to see and feel how connected every aspect of the world is. I believe my interest started at a young age too. 
watching roly-polies crawl around beneath the rocks in my home garden. In middle school, I traveled to Ecuador, staying in a lodge in the mountains with no electricity. We had to hike a few miles just to reach it, and feeling completely enveloped in nature, that was definitely a time when I felt that connection with the earth around me and it clicked that it was something I wanted to foster and protect. A year later, I spent a week in a completely self-sustainable school in the Bahamas. We were allowed one minute of water usage in the shower, which was collected rainwater. And just that small action made me cognizant of what it is to take from the earth we live in, and how it is that we can give back. I became consciously aware of this interconnectedness between our actions and the world, and it became more and more like second nature to try to make my impact on the environment a positive one. Our fight to protect the environment is one that everyone must join. Jane's story was wonderful to hear because it showed that there is always space to fight for this cause that impacts all of us. And speaking about social issues, I mean, from the very beginning, um, uh, the Great White Hope, I mean, your, so many of your, your roles on stage and on screen have been, um, there's been a social, a social or political conscience uh, underpinning them. Yes. And, and uh, I know that I was very interested in social issues from childhood excuse me, and political issues. But I, I grew up in a family of Republicans, a medical family, uh, and I swear I came out of my mother's womb as a Democrat. I was <laughs> a very, I was liberal from a very early age. And I just remember arguing with them at 10 years old and saying, no, no, but you have to think about this. Have to think about but, uh, the truth was, I don't know whether there was something in me that translated that I was politically and socially conscious when I was a young actress, because these roles came to me. Mm. I didn't go out begging for them. Yeah. Uh, and I was so grateful to have them because I thought they, they had a depth to them. You brought up the Great White Hope. Well, that was just a remarkable piece of history and and theater and film for me to be involved with for so many years. And yeah, speak a little bit about your collaborators on that James Earl Jones. You were also directed by your husband, not then husband, Ed Sheeran in that. You just speak a bit about that. And, and for me, for us now, I mean, it's, I think there have been a lot of advances, of course, so we couldn't understand, I perhaps couldn't understand the, um, um, environment to which um, that play and then film um, was yeah yeah I, I couldn't um, imagine the effect. Yes, well, the the play was done first at Arena Stage in Washington D.C. in 1967, and then went to Broadway in 1968. 1968 was the year of amazing political tension and movement in the United States. And it was the height of the black power movement. There was a wonderful black leader named Stokely Carmichael who was promulgating black is beautiful and black power. And the play, The Great White Hope, was about uh, a black boxer, true, uh, um, that James Earl Jones played, and uh, who, who won the heavyweight championship in 1910 and James Earl played a, an amalgam of this man and, and I played uh, sort of uh, he had many many white mistresses and mm. and lovers the real man and um, so it was it was it, a play about racial tension because they took his belt away. He was sort of like Muhammad Ali who had his belt taken away as a conscientious objector when he, and he changed his name from Cassius Clay in the 60s to Muhammad Ali. So the play had those kind of overtones. It had overtones of the 1910 heavyweight championship and it had uh, racial overtones having to do with a white woman, uh, me me in the play. So it was a very volatile piece of theater that hit Broadway in 1968. Uh, that civil, that civil rights movement was 
at its height. And as I say, Stokely Carmichael had yeah. just gone up, come on the scene. So it was a remarkable play to perform on Broadway. And it was wonderfully written by Howard Sackler and directed by, as you point out, my late husband, Ed Sharon. I just felt deeply grateful to be part of this play that was ringing some kinds of bells for all people who came to see it. The first part of the first year that we played it on Broadway, the audience was predominantly white, and towards the end of that year, they were a little bit more than 50% black. So it was extraordinary to feel the uh, emotion coming across the footlights to us on stage of both both white and black during that year. I felt very grateful to be part of that. Yes. And then in that period, I mean, really, you had like a, a wonderful run. I don't know the exact chronology, but if we're sticking with uh, then film and the kind of social and political conscience films, then you had, you can correct my chronology, I'll just be skipping around, but just yeah. films that are, and roles that are just um, really some of the key um, I- iconic um, piece of storytelling for the decade, you know, all the president's men and Kramer versus Kramer, and these are, you know, classics. Just t- tell us a little bit about the chronology or perhaps how one um, role might have led to, to another. Um... Well, The Great White Hope really, uh, for our careers, was mm-hmm. seminal. Both James Earl Jones and I received Tony Awards um, for yes. the theater, for the play, and then we went on to do the film. We both received Academy Award nominations. And that, that kind of set us up for our careers because both uh, James Earl and myself went on to do not only film, television, but continued to be prominent in the theater as well. We felt extremely fortunate that that happened. Uh, And as I say, I did not seek out these roles, but all the president's men, um, I can't remember actually me, I'm not very good on chronology either, but I don't know if Kramer versus Kramer came first or all the president's men. Maybe all the president's men? All the president's men. Okay, good. And that was the remarkable director, Alan Pakula. Mm. And I, I, All the President's Men is the one movie that I go back and I look at maybe once every two years. Mm. And it still holds up because it's such a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And I have a very, very small role. In fact, I'm on mm. screen less than 10 minutes, I think, in the two scenes that I'm in. But the scene I play is the bookkeeper. And it's about... Um, Woodward and Bernstein, the reporters for the Washington Post, played by uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, uh, coming to interview the bookkeeper for the slush fund uh, uh, for um, the Republican campaign for Nixon. Mm -hmm. And I play the bookkeeper. She's only called the bookkeeper. But that scene where Dustin comes to interview me as Bernstein is so incredibly directed that it was almost foolproof for us as actors. It was wonderfully written, too. Uh, but it, Pakula put us in a very small room in a real house in Virginia, in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And the cinematographer had an absolutely humongous camera which took up, seemed to take up half of this tiny room. Pakula put me in a corner of that room with one lamp sort of on my face. So already it was a very hot summer day when we were filming. There was no air conditioning. And I already felt trapped in that corner. And Bernstein, played by Dustin, comes in. And he sits on a couch opposite me and leans forward. Well... Wow, what tension do you have just mm-hmm. by that setup alone? And it's to my it to this day it's my favorite scene I think that I've ever done on film because of the way it was set up and because you can see Dustin just perspiring like mad trying to get the story from me and you can see my fear and anxiety about it and then finally the beans being spilled. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great, pro- and when you say to me, it's only 10 minutes or something, but it's a, it's a pivotal scene, and it really captures, you know, you know, ordinary people caught up in, um, you know, extraordinary circumstances and the pressure of that, and, and, and who can you turn to, you can't turn to anyone, so, and the relief that's, you know, that someone will be doing something about it. So it's it's surprising to me that it was that brief because it's, yeah, it's like a comp- compressed emotion. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so you speak about direction and you speak about um, directing styles or, um, yeah, just if you, like, what are some of the, the directors or the, some of the notes or what, what, kind, what do you look for in a director? What do you, have you particularly appreciated in, in, some, in some of the more challenging roles? Um, well, coming out of the theater, I suppose I'm looking for a, a, a theatrical director. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that by, you know, over theatrics. I'm looking for somebody who understands heightened drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when, it's, when it's presented by the writer and how the actors take it, and, 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 are, and, and um, then the director knows how to set it up. And that's exactly what, if you go back and look at Pakula's films, not just all the president's men. He's always uh, setting things up theatrically. And I don't mean, as I say, again, I, it's not coming right from the theater. But he knows what it means uh, to, to build a scene. So I'm always looking for that. And then I, I, have, I have many favorite directors. My, my very favorite was always my husband, Ed Sharon, the man who became my husband. We started off um, not married to each other, but we ended up married for almost 50 years, and it was in a r- remarkable uh, relationship in many, many ways, not the least of which was uh, that we worked together so many times as actress and director. And um, so he had this, clearly, this wonderful sense of height. He did a film I was not in called Valdez is Coming with uh-huh. Burt Lancaster, that is exactly what I'm talking about. It's highly dramatic. Bert is remarkable in it, and it's a cult film today. But other directors that I loved working with were uh, I, uh, Robert Benton. I, I worked oh, yes. with Benton twice, and you brought up Kramer versus Kramer, so that was the first time I worked with him. And he that, that was a, a, an amazing film coming at a time when uh, we're coming still on riding high on the on the wave of feminism back in the mid 70s mm. and we were re-examining the role of women at home and being exclusively the mothers mm. um, and so then y- you have Dustin again Dustin yes. and I work together again in that and Dustin um, goes to court to have custody of his son when Meryl uh, leaves. And um, so Meryl Street plays the mother and she finally realizes she, she really cannot take care of the child in the same way that he can. So that was a first. And that was a, 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 a wonderfully told story that Benton wrote and directed and I was honored to be part of that as well. Yes, it was really, I mean, again, these are um, helping people. A lot of people were even, uh, I, I could think the taboo of divorce, uh, the the idea of traditional marriage was still very strong. And so a lot of, I think, it helped, these films helped people voice things that they were afraid to speak about, that they were just kind of... Um, experience or suffer um, silently um, and so it was very empowering for women I, and I, I remember um, I mean I was young when I think it first came out but I remember um, seeing it later uh, and how um, that helped um, women in particular or also maybe children who would be experiencing that uh, and uh, make sense of what might be happening uh, between their parents Yes, 
yes, makes sense of it. And also for men, let's, I mean, oh, it's yes, liberating men. for men. Because yeah. you, Dustin starts off as <laughs> as somebody who doesn't pay much attention to the child at all, to the little boy. Uh, and, mm. uh, and then he ends up just being a really fine father. And then uh, this, I, I remember a scene where you're discussing the possibility of your character um, remarrying. And and I think, and, and you voiced, I think, what was, or your character voiced what was a kind of um, a belief held more uh, traditionally by people of a certain generation that they wouldn't marry again or whatever, you know, the husband could go maybe and have another life or whatever, but there's this, you know, I've I've spoken to to women, particularly a certain generation. That that's it. It's like you marry, and then that's it. And even if there were divorces, um, so it's interesting how, um, and you know, great white hope the same thing. It's interesting how our perceptions of these uh, um, have of relationships have evolved. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely evolved. That's another wonderful scene uh, that you bring up where Dustin and I are sitting in the park and I have my husband's left mm-hmm. and um, I have this little baby <laughs> in my arms and uh, that child fell asleep in my arms while we did the whole yeah. hour of work. I was just amazed. And it, yeah, it's very touching. That's a really fine scene that Benton, again, set up beautifully uh, sitting on the park bench side by side. Yeah, and then I guess just the other film you've done with him is um, Feast of Love. Is that Robert Benton? That's right. Very good, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's interesting when you can work again with Dustin Hoffman, when you can work again with another person, you develop these shorthands and uh, ways of reading each other's, um, taking each other's emotional temperatures and things like that. I can't imagine what it's like because I'm more, I'm a little bit collaborative with this project, but I'm also a painter and I write, so it's more like... It's me reading my own temperature. <laughs> That's right. Very much so. Very much so. Well, I agree with you. Um, the The thing that I do love the most about the profession that I chose at an early age to become a part of, mm-hmm. I was about nine when I, wow. I decided, well, I wanted to be on the stage, is the collegiality, mm-hmm. uh, the the fact that you are in a collaborative, creative effort together uh and sometimes you, you make magic together mm-hmm. uh, so at the same time that i was doing the the films that you mentioned kramer versus kramer and um and all the president's men i also began to embark on eleanor roosevelt yes because there was a seven hour mini series that uh, that was being done i I don't want to get this wrong, but it's either ABC or CBS. I think it's ABC, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, it, it it was a long project because we didn't get the green light for that for mm-hmm. a couple of years. So Edward Herman, who played FDR, and I played Eleanor, we, we did a lot of uh, research, which is something that I have, if I have a, a historical character to play, I really, really yeah. delve in and do my research and so it was very fortuitous that we had two years to study these remarkable people in, in our American history. And uh, that director was a man named Dan Petrie. Mm-hmm. I went on to do a couple of more films with Dan. He was, again, a great, great director. And what I loved most, Mia, was, as I say, the sense of collegiality, because when you get to a point where you and the director really have a meeting of minds, Mm-hmm. And you can, you know each other so well that you can laugh and joke on the set and then get right back, right back to work. You know, it doesn't take anything away because everything gets relaxed then. Mm-hmm. And when, when I'm in a very relaxed state, uh, not, to be, not to say lassitudinous, but no, a, relaxed, a relaxed state, it's when anything can happen. Yeah. And you feel comfortable. I f- you feel comfortable. I feel comfortable performing. And whatever comes in, out, I trust it. Mm-hmm. 
because I've done my research or whatever, and I trust my director and my fellow actors. So that's why uh, uh, directors I particularly love to work with. I love to come back and work with them again. Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, I think that that's probably one of the more difficult things to teach um, is that relaxed state. And it's, and because, and then people think, people who haven't done it think that, oh, it's, it's natural, it's easy, it's just like breathing for you. And it's like how much work it took to get to that, where you, the that's, distance between you and the character. Is yeah, that's right. And yeah. so we should say that um, you won an Emmy Award. Did you win two Emmy Awards for the, the overall, the, uh, the Eleanor and Franklin series, or are an Emmy and you were nominated? You've had, you won so many awards, it's hard for me to keep track of these. <laughs> Well, no, the the irony was everybody thought I was going to win the Emmy Award to play, playing Eleanor Roosevelt mm-hmm. in those two, but I didn't. The show, the show. Oh, the show, won, yes. The show won many, many Emmys, but mm-hmm. I think both Edward and I, Edward Herman, mm-hmm. who played FDR, and I did not win any mm-hmm. Emmys, and any everybody was kind of shocked. <laughs> I I was a little bit shocked, too, because I, I thought, well, my gosh, seven hours of playing Eleanor Roosevelt. From 18 to 60? I mean, that's a big, it's a transformation. Yeah. 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 Well, I had a lot of makeup. Uh-huh. It, it it was, it, the makeup back then, and that was quite a while ago, actually, mm-hmm. you know, almost 45 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the makeup the prostheses were not as fine as they are today. I cannot believe some of the work that's coming out of makeup now for Mm -hmm. film. Like you look at Bombshell, how that man did the prosthetics and made them seamless and the camera, but the cameras are so much better. Everything's so much better today. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think that, I mean, in terms, I can imagine from an actress trying to imagine that you're in an intimate moment or you're you're not surrounded by this giant apparatus of a camera um (laughs) you know uh so i i don't know what it was like and then if you go further back the the heavy lights that were even you know the 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 birth of this medium i can't imagine what that was like um oh they were called they were called brutes oh brutes And they were brutal. Uh, If you were out in the sun, you had to, the lights were there to counteract the brightness of the sun. And and so you'd have a double whammy. And I would, I remember just my my eyes just tearing and tearing and tearing. And I'd say, okay, just tell me when to open them. And the makeup woman would run over and dab, dab the the tears coming off because not that it was hurting, but my eyes were just watering from the brightness of the light. So it was brutal. <laughs> but, you know, the truth is you go back and you look at some of those close-ups back in the in those days, not just of me, not of me, but of really big major stars, and they're extraordinary. The, the, the lighting in, in the eyes in particular uh, yeah. could be extraordinary it's well there's such an act of like sculpture it's strange because you know my you know sometimes i think i was having a conversation yesterday about notions of beauty and my notions of beauty were formed by this very old book we had in our house that was um legends of the silver screen or something like that and i Mm -hmm. thought that the way because they had the extreme lights and the costumes and the makeup but i didn't realize well i was only five so i looked at this and i thought Oh, it's amazing. They're like sculptures. They're sculpted. And so um, I'm a little... Oh, yes, I was speaking to this, um, the, the president of the Costume Designers Guild. We were doing an interview. So we were talking about beauty. And um, mm. I think that, yeah, I mean, it, our, our, our changing notions of, of glamour are interesting. I mean, last month, I think pajamas have <laughs> made a big comeback in people's <laughs> lives. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so but um yeah so we're a long way from legends of the silver screen but it's strange and who for you just like kind of like speaking freely who are some of those you know figures that you really admired and um who who helped perhaps um contribute to the artist you are today uh growing up i i mean i grew up in during world war ii and Mm-hmm. There, there was nothing. There was just one radio station my mother would listen 
Yeah. And we, we lived with another family and our dads were overseas forever and ever. And um, so I didn't, I, I had no experience of film theater or anything until mm -hmm. I, my dad took me to see a ballet when he got back from the war in 1946. He was over there through 45 actually mm -hmm. because he was a medic he was a doctor but um and that changed my life seeing this ballet danish ballet mm -hmm. so i started off just gravitating towards the theater and the great theater artists with whom i hardly ever saw because i didn't live in new york and my parents would just go to the theater themselves and then come back and tell me all about it mm -hmm. but when i did see them like um uh, Julie Harris yes. on stage, and um, Kim Stanley was the most mm -hmm. remarkable, mo uh, most remarkable actress. She never held back emotionally. I mean, she held back until she let it go, and she was stunning on stage. I, I was totally captivated by her. And in in film, I. I loved Barbara Stanwyck. I think uh. her 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 films mostly. Now let's just go back for one minute to lighting because you can see in those old films of Barbara Stanwyck um, that there's a light called an inky that they don't use anymore. Yeah. What was an inky? An inky was a tiny little spotlight that was right next or under the camera that was an eye light for close-ups. You can go back and look at the close-ups of, of the stars of those days, especially in back of black and white, and you can see the illumination of the eye ah. in particular. We don't use, have inkies anymore, so there's no theatricality that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I so admired um, lighting, the, the lighting designers, the cinematographers, lighting designers and stage cinematographers um, in, in film, the great ones like um, I, I think I did Bernard Guffey's last film one was my first, The Great White Hope, mm -hmm. and he used an inky. Mm -hmm. It was a tech, one of the great last Technicolor films for 20th Century Fox too. Mm -hmm. He used an inky, and you know who else was doing one of her last big films was the great costume designer Irene Sharif, mm -hmm. who was just a remarkable. Uh, costume designer and uh, w would fight for the color all my costumes were made they were built uh, in a special house in, in in Los Angeles where they build incredible costumes and it was a high budget film for the time and Irene came in I'll never forget one day with a rose from her garden one petal and she mm -hmm. said this is the color I want <laughs> 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 and she gave it to the builder. <laughs> ah, that's no, that's real artistry, and I think I think the people people who are thinking about costumes or thinking about lighting or the actors or the directors, like they really, of course, you really um, have a great appreciation. But I think that the other people might just feel like it's almost done by magic. <laughs> that's the illusion is created is so strong, and. Um, yeah. So one, I'm really glad that you you mentioned you know the the craftspeople. Um, my stepfather works in television, and, and so part of one of the missions of also of this project is to, I call it the invisible arts, to celebrate those who are like behind the scenes or even oh. teachers, you know, who like who do so much but are not really yes. seen. Yeah. Yes, I I'm, I mean it, that's what I say is. I feel so lucky to be part of this collaborative effort mm -hmm. that is the world of, of uh, television, film, theater. Mm -hmm. And by the way, it is changing by the minute. Yes. Um, you know, I think it, the last play that I did on Broadway, which was, by the way, the last show to close its scheduled run on Broadway, mm -hmm. we closed March 1st, Grand Horizons. Oh, yes. And, um, and and then the theaters were shut down a week later or a little bit after a week later. And so nothing new was coming in. Uh, that was amazing. But my point is, I we may be doing this in a different way 
now that we're all in lockdown mm-hmm. for one night uh, uh, on television. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so you can't keep a good creative spirit down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these these things will transmogrify. They will become something new. Some mm-hmm. of them will be probably rightly so enormous failures and mm-hmm. other ones will succeed in ways we have no way of even estimating right now. And that's very exciting. It is exciting. And I'm glad that um, uh, that you have, you take it with um, to it to such a, with a, a positive, you're seeing the positives, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, yes, just as theater at like the birth of film, you know, did so much to enrich that medium and to give it, you know, dimension and depth, you know, as it was finding its feet, I mean, and we see the crossover um, into television now. And but I don't. I mean, I really. It also has made us really hungry for the live, um, you know, for the perfor- the live performing arts. Um, so I I hope it's not something that we have to make a long term adjustment to. I I've been around for long enough <laughs> to know that when television came up, came in, everybody was said that's the end of theater. Mm-hmm. And no, it wasn't the end of theater. In fact, they all are proliferating at the same time. And the population and it, and the cultural aspects of our global population are such that they can take it all. Mm. And we, we may have our preferences. I mean, some of my friends are just total opera fanatics. And they find it no matter what, whether it's HD on television or they go to the, uh, to, to the opera. It's not going to go away. It's yeah. it's going to be changed in different ways. Yeah. We'll find new ways. Yeah, and I think it's a one of enriching. I mean, I think now, I mean, television has gone through a big, you know, renaissance. And I mean, some of your recent television roles, like in The Good Wife and The Good Fight, are as text dialogue heavy and, you know, rich in, in characters as as any play. So I'm really, I really love to see that influence, you know, that... Um, mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not, um, you know, it doesn't, I mean, I, I sometimes I had found uh, sort of kind of broadcast television a little bit too, I don't know, simplified, you know, but I'm glad that complexity is really something that's flourishing now. Um, it's beautiful. Yes. Uh, yes. And the, the audience's intelligence are taken into account, you know. Um, yes. So I, I can I, I I love that, but always there's a little caution because the more as, as good as as good as these popular mediums become, then it kind of takes people away from the theater. It does kind of take people away from books and um, is it's competing for the same audiences. So um, I know I know <laughs> it's true, but I, I I'm suspicious mm-hmm. of a lot of people who say they read a lot and buy all these books and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, because I look at them and say, how do you have the time anymore Yeah, to read all these things? So I have a feeling that people are just buy these books and <laughs> they just sit there and they just look at the titles or they read a few pages. I don't know. They, they skim a lot, you mean? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I do. Ha- I mean, I have, I'm obliged to read because I interview, I write as well. And I interview a lot of writers. So and writers are pretty good at like sensing when you haven't read their books. <laughs> And so I have to, I do a lot of reading, you know, they kind of know. I mean, of course, there's always, you have to, you know, and I believe in doing like a body of work interview. I mean, for, for me, that's the whole point. I don't really understand like a five minute conversation because my responsibility is for our students. So as we share with students of the arts or from STEM uh, and what you've done in your own career and what these other participants have done, they have really interesting, amazing career paths. And I don't want to forget also all the champion you've done in celebrating your work as chairman of our former chairman of the National Endowment of the Arts. So these are really amazing career paths to, to include your conservation work, your acting work, you know, all of these things. Um, and you serve on a number of boards. So I feel like a, I have a big responsibility to go in depth to inspire like the the students the next generation um so i would be um i would be missing out on a great opportunity if i didn't do my homework (laughs) that's right well you're you're different you're you're multi-gifted multi-talented 
And I think you extend every day by another hour. So you have 25 hours in a day. <laughs> well, thank you. So let's talk a little bit about when you came to the National Endowment for the Arts um, and what, um, you know, what was your mission as you came to that and your understanding of the organization and, um, you know, and what your aims were. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, again, this came out of the blue for me. I mm -hmm. was in a, a highly successful play on Broadway called um, The Sisters Rosenzweig, uh, mm -hmm. written by oh, yes. uh, uh, the, the late Wendy Wasserstein. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was approached by an aide to Senator Claiborne Pell mm -hmm. from, this was from Rhode Island. Would I be interested in being the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts? Um, so the president was Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. and and he had just taken office. And it, to make a long story short, I said, "Well, yes, but." And I never thought for a minute that I I, I would become a chairman because I didn't think I had uh, any background for really this kind of political position. But I met with four people who were very influential in New York that the that the administration had asked to vet me. And besides, the FBI just talked to me about what I could do culturally for the agency. Mm -hmm. And they made it clear they just wanted the First Amendment freedom of expression upheld. Oh. That's what they made clear. Because the prior administration, uh, George Bush Sr., had... Um, had made it very, very difficult for that to happen uh, to my predecessor at the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, John Fronmeyer. So I said, well, of course. I said, I'm an actress and nothing human is alien to me. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm fine with that, you know. I, I'll fight for it. And they said, great. And so 40 people were finally winnowed down to two of us and then I was chosen by uh, the president and I guess Hillary Clinton, too, who also met me. I never met Bill Clinton at that time. And then I went before uh, the Senate uh, and I was confirmed unanimously by all the senators, which was pretty remarkable because they included people like Strom Thurmond mm -hmm. and uh, Jesse Helms, who were extremely right wing. Uh, so I, I was given a gift with that overwhelming acceptance and welcoming. And I came in, and within, within the first year, it became clear that I was going to be in the trenches fighting for the agency because there were talk about all these egregious grants, egregious mm -hmm. in the minds of uh, some of the conservatives in, in Congress, uh, that that they could would not stand for these and and newt gingrich became speaker of the house because the house was taken over by republicans in 95 which was a huge shock to everybody so uh i had i was the recipient in in you know tangentially of an NEA grant during the time the Great White Hope was being developed at Arena Stage in Washington D.C. in the late uh, in the in the 60s, and a $25,000 grant was given to Howard Sackler to develop and write the play. I was a member of the company. I felt that I owed my career to the NEA, and I really went to bat for it. I went to all 50 states and most of the districts, not Guam. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I made it clear to people that the arts were, the NEA gave grants that had to be matched in the, the district that they were given, and except for the individual grants to individual artists like yourself, visual artists or uh, writers dancers so on and 
that was what was represented in your district. Do you like the arts? I would talk to them about all that. Yes. Did you know that the NEA gave that grant to that little company down the street so that writers could come and come together and have a, a, a writer's festival? No, I didn't know that. Da, da, da. So it wasn't a hard sell because people loved it. And they, they realized that their families were involved in it, even if they didn't understand that the government was involved with the with your initial grant. So that was that was my understanding then of how amazing the communities across the United States were with artists. They were filled with artists. They were filled with NEA grants. They were filled with audiences that loved them. And I came back and I'd say to, I'd meet with the congressmen and women and I'd say, this is what's happening in your district. It was still a fight because Newt Gingrich had come in get, saying, we've got to get rid of the NEA and the NEH, uh, public television and so on. Yeah. But after four years, we won that battle. We won it by really about one vote in the House. The Senate... Uh, the senators were really wonderful, and I actually had a relationship with Jesse Helms, which was pretty extraordinary. Wow. He, at one point, you know, I, I would say to him, Senator, we're going to have to agree to disagree because I don't agree with you about this. I didn't give this grant personally to that artist that you don't like, who you call sacrilegious, whoever it might be. Uh, and it was a jury of his peers that gave him that grant. His peers, and probably some of them are some of your state, uh, from maybe a, a artist from your state. So we agreed to disagree, and someday I'll publish the letters from Jesse Helms that he wrote to me because they were pretty extraordinary. I mean, he could get very angry at me. He'd call me up and he'd say, what are you doing, Jane? <laughs> But we but, need to, sorry, I was thinking No, no, you're right. I think what you're going to say is we need to argue with each other. Yeah, it shows we care, so, actually. Those of us who are on different sides, we need yeah. to understand each other. Today, more than ever, there mm -hmm. is such a divide. And I know that we have more in common mm -hmm. than we don't have. Well, I mean, it's very interesting because at this period of confinement, I feel, and, and now uh, these agencies are also, the budgets have been cut, but I think that more, if you ask the ordinary person, what's, um, how are they making it through the current confinement, um, they'll tell you the arts, they'll tell you that they, and it's not just distraction, but it's just how their, their sense of connection is keeping them, they're being kept sane by the arts, right? Yes, um, yes. So the ordinary person understands it, and it's so it's this the lack of communication between the government. But of course, I do understand that, and you could speak more eloquently on this. Is that sometimes people in government are afraid that you know these um, compelling works of art may inspire people to feel and to think, and it's not always advent to their advantage. That's right. Yeah, <sighs> but. You know, this this will lead me back uh, to what what I feel we need to do now yes. about uh, uh, um, a declining uh, habitat on the Earth. Yes, and I am speaking right now on Earth Day. Yes, and I'm I'm on the advisory board of the largest conservation organization in the world called BirdLife International. BirdLife International, headquartered in the UK, is um, partnered with over 120 countries around mm -hmm. the world. They have uh, uh, BirdLife International partnerships within that country, a number of them, in fact, that is out to save and protect birds and be educational about uh, birds in general. And today, uh, they have presented before the United Nations a, a right to a healthy environment as part of the Human Rights Charter. Yeah. So that's what we really need to look at because a, a right to a healthy environment includes every living thing on the planet. Mm -hmm. And that means we have to clean up our backyards. Mm -hmm. 
literally. They have to be inviting to what might live there and not, we shouldn't be out there killing them so much. We shouldn't be certainly eating these animals that have viruses that can kill us all. And so we need to explain to everybody that the right of wildlife and wild things is something that we all share because it means our own health. Clean water, clean air, clean land. One thing I've always loved about birds was they could do everything. They flew, they swam, <laughs> they, they, they walked on the earth, they lived in the trees, they lived on, you know, everywhere. Birds were everywhere and they are still everywhere. But we have to safeguard them because we know so little about all the creatures of the world and the complexity of how we're connected that we have to save it if we're going to save Mother Earth and save ourselves. I know when you think of I, I I think that's a beautiful message and I'm I'm so in awe and sometimes I get um, upset people who uh, who have um, a lack of appreciation for the different ways that animals communicate like in some ways because they don't have our written language that they don't I mean they have amazing sonar if you look at birds the way they all can fly together in these amazing formations and. Mm. Um, I mean, could we do that? I mean, not even, I mean, you have to train for years as a dancer to, to even <laughs> approach that level of communication, right? Yes, um, yes. And um, so it's beyond our understanding, right? And we have to That's work right. with them. Um, That's right. And they're, they're amazing. Um, I, I think we, I mean, it's I, what, your message is so beautiful. And I think we should just be grateful. We actually have a beautiful planet you know, yes. an amazing, yes. yes. Um, I mean, still without, like we've been working really hard to damage it, like, um, but it's still amazing. I mean, it, every day there's something, if you just to think about how it all works together. Um, so I'm so, I'm so glad that we have um, people like Jane Alexander working on our behalf, but I think that your message of us taking responsibility, and if you have a message to, I mean, I, because one thing, this is an educational initiative, so thank you for bringing that in about the future and conservation and animal and human welfare, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, we have so many models, and some of them are breaking apart or not working in the ways that we with the, they they should you know we see that today so if there were some things that you feel we we might change to to work on these systems so that we might have a better tomorrow so we still have a planet to pass on to the next generation what are, what are some of those things well we have to address the inequality of wealth in the world mm -hmm. um because poverty is what drives people to desperate measures and some of the desperate me measures are uh, eviscerating their own backyard uh, mm -hmm. because they need to eat or they need to uh, grow things. It usually has to do with food and shelter, frankly, right. and a living, making a living. Uh, and that's why we destroy things. And then part of addressing the inequality of the world is making sure that uh, the that big business does not pollute it, does not eviscerate our planet through uh, bad practices. So that also goes along with uh, inequality. The, these are the things that I feel that our younger generation now understands in a very visceral way that did not become clear to me for many, many years, but they get it. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I have a lot of hope uh, for the future because of them. I'm also extremely grateful for technology in my life as an older person. Without it, um, I, I, I don't know how I'd feel during this whole uh, pandemic. But it keeps me in touch. It keeps me in touch with you right now, talking to you. So I think that uh, the social will and Technology is where we need to know uh, to go 
for looking for the future. Mindful always, mindful always of all the living things, including plants, animals, trees, all the living things. And thank you, Jane Alexander, for your lifetime commitment to the arts and conservation, the complexity of your characters, and telling the stories that need to be told with depth, compassion, and grace. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Izzy Samardi. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Dallas and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.